1 Timothy 3, 8-16. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's word. Amen. Um, I want to say a really quick prayer. Um, This morning I, I just saw a headline right before I walked in here that there's been uh, in Mogadishu, another suicide bombing, and 50 people are dead, and um, it's awful. Because of the region that it's in, it's unlikely, I've not seen any, any details related to the story, but it's unlikely that these people were followers of Jesus, and I want to feel that. Um, I, we see so many suicide bombings and terrorist attacks that it's just, it's just another day at the office, it feels like, and I don't want it to be like another day at the office, and I want us to feel this. And so I want to pray for the families of the deceased in uh, Somalia. And uh, also there's been several others in recent weeks. And um, man, I just uh, I want to talk to God about this for a second. And so if you join me, Lord Jesus, um, I feel more and more grieved as I interact with what I read this morning in that headline. I'll be honest, at first I didn't feel anything. Because it happened so much. Because it's so far away. Because it doesn't really impact my life directly. And God, I repent for my selfishness. I repent for my hard-heartedness towards the people of the earth that you love. God, regardless of what someone's religion is, every person alive was made in your image. And it is your desire that every person alive comes to a knowledge of the truth, and that is Jesus, the one true God in the flesh who dwelt among us, who has been resurrected from the dead, and who sits at the right hand of the Lord God Almighty. And we pray, Jesus, that in this pain, that the gospel would continue to make inroads in these very very desperate and broken parts of our world. Lord, your word says that because of our sin, you gave over this world to futility. And this broken world is anticipating with bated breath the revealing of the sons of God. And Jesus, we pray that men and women who are devoted to you would emerge by the power of the Spirit all over this globe 
And we pray, Jesus, that through their courageous preaching and teaching of your word, that the kingdom of God would come to bear in this world. That the loving, gentle, beautiful rule of Yahweh himself would come to bear. We need you, God. We beg you, come, come soon. Wipe every tear from every eye. Heal the brokenhearted. Judge the evil. And raise up the righteous. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We're in a series, a little bit lengthier series than we're typically in, on um, called This Is Us. And what we're doing is using the first part of this year to remind ourselves of our core values, to reflect on those core values, so that as we move forward into the future, hopefully there's a unity of spirit among us. Um, last week and this week, we zoomed in on the subject of serving, giving ourselves to others. And today, at the end of the service, we're going to be installing four deacons uh, in our church. I'm really, really excited about that. Um, last week, I mentioned to you that our aim, our intent, is to be the most caring church you've ever interacted with. I want to clarify that statement. I'm not saying that I want to be the most caring church as though other churches are our competition. Other churches are not our competition. Now, in our world where church is sort of a cottage industry, we have to fight against that. We have to fight against that, and I want to fight against that. When I talk about being the most caring church you've interacted with, our competition is our shared sin and brokenness. Because the only thing that's going to keep us from being a beautiful, caring church is us. Us. So we're competing with who we are. I don't know about you, but I can be selfish sometimes. I know you can too. We are. We can be really selfish. We can suppress um, compassion. We can ignore brokenness and just walk on by it like it never existed. Almost like what I did this morning when I saw that headline. I don't want us to be that way as a church. I want us to be deep and textured and rich in our caring, rich. So our competition is not any church in this area. It's no church. Our competition is us. It's ourselves. We're raising up a deacon ministry because we've realized... One, the Bible teaches this. <laughs> so if you ask, why are we raising up deacons? Because the Bible says to. And then two, uh, we're, we need to establish a deacon ministry in our church because it's become clear over the last several years that having elders, no matter how many elders that we have, and no matter how many community groups that we have, there are still cracks and crevices in the foundation of this church through which mercy is leaking. And we don't want to leak mercy and care anymore. We want to make sure that every person in our church is cared for and cared for well. This is why we're doing this. This is our motive. This is our motive. I want to go to um, the, uh, just a couple of verses, verse, starting in verse 14. I mentioned this last week. I want to go there again because I think it's really important to give the foundation of why deacons exist and what effect deacons should have on all of us. This is not going to be 
an antiseptic teaching on deacons. This has everything to do with the glory of God and with our continued renewal in Christ. And so listen to these words in verse 14 of 1 Peter chapter 3. The scripture says this. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. So obviously this is a letter Paul has written from a long distance. He has sent to Timothy, his son in the ministry. He said, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things so that... Now the things that he's talking about are the two chapters ahead of this in the first few verses of chapter 3. He's talking about Timothy, his leadership in the church. And then he talks about the need for the establishment of elders or pastors and the establishment of deacons in the church. And he says, I'm writing these things to you. I'm telling you to establish elders and deacons for a reason. And here's what it is. So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And at this point, I really want to preach that again, because I know that word behave carries some baggage. I'm going to ask you, if you weren't here last week, to listen to the podcast, Discipline Chris. Focus. Okay, so how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The buttress are those, if you ever look at a Gothic cathedral, there are huge pillars And in order to elevate that grand ceiling, that roof above the cathedral, so it doesn't come crashing down, there is this buttress, these arches that help to bear and distribute the weight. And when he says that the church of the living God is a the pillar and buttress of the truth, he's not talking about buildings. He's talking about us as a people. We, as we live out the gospel, should be in our broken world the pillar and buttress of the truth. We should be holding up the truth. The implication is that the truth could come down if we don't protect it. We've got to protect the truth, uphold the truth, promote the truth, preach the truth, never compromise away from the truth. The church, every one of us, not just the pastors of the church. It's not pastors and elders who are the buttress of the truth. But it's all followers of Jesus. Together, as we live with one another and practice the kingdom of God and love, we should be functioning as the pillar and buttress of the truth of the gospel. This is what we're called to be. This is what we're called to be. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So what is the truth that we maintain? What is the truth that we guard and hold up? And he developed a shorthand. And he says it this way. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And very likely, the next few phrases were a common confession that Christians 2,000 years ago walked around confessing. They said this often in their church gatherings. And when their, when their communities gathered together, they would repeat these words to one another. They would say these words to God in Christian worship. And here are the words. This is the confession. He, being Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated, vindicated by the Spirit 
through his resurrection, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Taken up in glory. Now, it's interesting that he uses the phrase mystery of godliness. Why didn't he just say we confess what godliness is? Why did he say we confess the mystery of godliness? What's he getting at here? And in order for me to explain that, we've got to go back to Matthew chapter 13. And I want to read with you Matthew 13, 11 through 17. Now, I want to remind everybody here, I give you a challenge toward the end of the year last year. And I said, what would your life be like if every single time you went to church, rather than waiting for me to say something stimulating that would maybe cause you to lean forward in your seat, what if you interacted with God's word in such a way that you took notes, maybe in a piece of paper, maybe in the back of the bulletin, maybe in your smartphone, but you took notes and you listened and you followed along with the logic of every sermon, and then throughout the following week, several times you interacted with that text that was preached on. And then maybe once or twice during the week, you listened to the podcast again. What would happen after 52 weeks if you did that every week? What would your spiritual life look like? I think every one of us knows we would really grow. We would really grow. I'm going to remind you to do that today. I strongly encourage you to do that. I get no joy out of you amening me. None. I want to see you grow. I want to see this teaching, this truth, possess you. I want to see you become a new person. So I'm going to ask you, as we get into God's word this morning, please, my dear friends, persevere with me in the truth. Persevere with me. Matthew 13 11 through 17, this is an incredible text. One of the strangest, most enigmatic texts in all of Scripture. I'm actually going to start in verse 10. Then the disciples came to him and said, Why, Jesus, do you speak to people in parables? What on earth? Why do you do that? Why? And he answered them, To you, my disciples... Now, we don't know if he's talking to just the 12 or a lot of the folks that followed him who were his disciples. It's possible he was talking to a lot of folks, but maybe just his 12. And he says, to you, it has been given to know the secrets. There we go again, this enigmatic language, mystery, secrets. What's Jesus up to? To you, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been been given. What? Why would he not want to give people the secrets of the kingdom? What's he doing? Doesn't he realize how much bigger his church would be if he just spoke forthright and honestly and, and, and just gave them the details? The one, Tell me what to do. One, two, three. That's not what Jesus' style was. Why? Why? For to the one who has... Remember, he's talking to people who have been born and bred in Judaism, in religion. Everybody grew up in the church here. And so most people took God for granted. And so we're getting getting into Jesus' logic. Why would he not want some people to know 
the secrets that are revealed. Why would he do that? For to the one who has, the one who has the word of God, the one who was born and bred in the word of God, the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And so you see, I think that there are two sort of categories in Jesus' mind. People who are so over-familiar with the Word of God that there's, there's nothing compelling about it. Jesus isn't interested in them. And then there are those who have been given the gift of His Word, who are going to be nurtured by His Word and transformed by His Word. That's what it seems to be saying. Maybe I'm wrong. Then verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see. In other words, the people who have the word, the people who grew up in it, they take, they take it for granted. Seeing, they don't see. How many people like that are in Memphis, which is sort of like a, a Jerusalem in our world? How many people grown up in the church who see but do not see? Who know everything you can know about Jesus and about God and yawn? Who check in and clock in at church, and then walk away totally, totally uncompelled by God's word. How many of us are there? I don't say this to judge anyone. Hopefully, if that's you, you're being shaken by this, and you're searching your own heart, and you're longing for something more. I hope that's you, if that's the case. So seeing, they may not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And you can go back to Isaiah chapter 6, when God called Isaiah to go and prophesy to hard-hearted Israel. And he basically told Isaiah, you're going to preach and you're not going to be successful, but I want you to do it anyway. Do it anyway. And so he quotes Isaiah 6. Indeed, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. So they've been exposed to God's word over and over and over and over again, and God's like, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. I've been there for you. I've tutored you along the way. I've tried to make it as simple as I can make it. I've given you my oracles. I've sent my son Jesus to you. And your heart's dull. You can't hear. You can't see. You can't understand. Then verse 15. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Going to church with your eyes closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. What? Why does Jesus not want to heal them? What is he? Is he crazy? Verse 16 and 17. But blessed are your eyes. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many Prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 
Many people who didn't have hard hearts and weren't dull longed for the Messiah's words to bathe them and renew them. And Jesus steps into a culture and the legacy of all of those folks, the the few who yearn for him. Now there's a whole culture of religiosity that just yawns through his teachings. Big whoop. I think there's at least two reasons why Jesus spoke in parables that he's teaching here. There's a couple of reasons. The first is to harden the hearts of some who heard. There were people he wanted to harden their hearts. It's sort of like Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart over and over and over, and then God said, okay, you harden your heart, I'm going to finish it off for you. And God hardened his heart to such an extent that repentance was impossible for him. It was impossible. So he came to harden hearts of people who already had hardened their hearts. That's scary. Because it's not like it feels different when that happens, I don't think. You just don't care about repenting anymore. The idea that on our deathbed, I'll get right with God. It's highly unlikely. You still think you have control over your relationship with God. And God is totally sovereign over his relationship with you. Anyone with a hard heart could be one breath away from God saying, eh, done, done. And like John Piper once said, one of the most disturbing and powerful statements I've ever heard, when that happens to you, 10,000 horses could not drag you back to God. <laughs> or 10,000 birdies. The second reason, maybe this, to cause, the reason why Jesus spoke enigmatically was to cause others to seek him out and ask him what he meant. It was almost Jesus' way of sort of thinning out the herd or identifying the people among him who really wanted to follow him. This is probably why. So whenever Jesus spoke, he offended and he mesmerized every time, every time. That really speaks volumes to me and my own expectations in preaching. Because we're, we're taught in our, again, this industry of church ministry in the South that maybe, just maybe, I can preach good enough and everybody will love me. And that's just not true. If it happened to Jesus, it'll happen to all of us. So he offended and he mesmerized. People left Jesus angry and dismayed and sometimes aghast. Others were arrested by Jesus' words. They were transfixed. They were spellbound. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. It's too good to be true. It's too good to be true, maybe. But it's true. And he said, blessed are those, my paraphrase here, who are grasped by the jaw-dropping weight of the gospel. Blessed are those who have been found by Jesus. Blessed are those who are like, how did I get here? I did nothing. I did not want him. My actions daily disowned him. And yet here I am, a sinner found by grace. 
I don't belong here. What am I doing here? The mystery of godliness has been revealed to those who are drawn in by the teachings and the ways of Jesus. I think what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 13 is this. The gospel can never be taught. It's caught. Now, don't expect me to get really shallow every Sunday from here on out because the gospel can't be taught. We have tons of books in this thing called the Bible where there's teaching. So he's not saying don't teach. But the truth is, is that anyone whose hearts are made new by the Spirit, it's not because somebody showed you how to make your heart new. Follow steps one, two, and three. It's not because you went to church enough. You did nothing. The Spirit brought your heart to life in such a way that the beauty of Jesus became beautiful to you. What was once ugly, what was once boring and dull, what was once the bane of your existence and stole from you your joy has become the beauty of your life. Only the Spirit can do that in your heart. Only the Spirit. And so you might be thinking, well, that's never happened to me. I'm glad you could admit that. Because there's a lot of people who think something's really, really wrong with Jesus or the faith because they just don't feel something. There's nothing wrong with Jesus. Nothing. If I were you, I would ask him, please give me affections for your kingdom. Please do something to my view, my worldview, the way I look at this life and show me the beauty of Jesus. I want to know that beauty. I want to believe in that beauty. I want to see that beauty. Ask him. Ask him. And so he boils it down, in a sense, to this confession. Now, confessions are really helpful because, like all confessions, they're intended to shepherd us and shape us Don't get scared here, liturgically. What I'm talking about when I use the word liturgically is a spiritual architecture in your life that sort of keeps you faced the right way, thinking the right thing, saying the right thing to cultivate new affections in your heart. It leads to growth and renewal. Confessions were effective in taking these complex, grand truths in the Bible and packing them into a suitcase that we can carry around. That's what confessions were for. That's what they were for. The ancient creeds. That's what they were for. And we carry that around with us. And we meditate on those truths. We think about those truths. And we repeat those truths. We repeat those truths. And over time, we're shaped by those truths. And so here's what I think would be really cool right now if we all together repeated this creed. How do you feel about that? And you don't have to. I'm not going to you know, get mad at you if you don't. Well, I mean, I will get mad at you, but I can't do anything about it. So what I'd like to do is, at, in this moment, I would like for us together to repeat this ancient creed that Paul told Timothy to have his church repeat after him. So let's do it together. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, 
proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now let's say it again and let's interact with it emotionally. Feel the power of these words. Remember that part of the song where he says, he has no rival. You know, I wish I could sing like really Pentecostally. It would be awesome. But he, like we, we felt that today. He has no rival. He has no equal. The weight and the power of those words captivated our church in that moment. That's what good art does, especially when it's inspired by the Spirit. So why don't we say this again together and let's think about and dwell on the power of these words. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Our Jesus. This is the foundation of our faith. This controls everything. And if it doesn't, we carry it around and we confess it. We take this confession into our finances. We take this confession into our sex lives. We take this confession into our single living. We take this confession into everything that we do. This is the foundation of what we are as Jesus people. This is who we are. This is why in our church, sometimes people get excited, emotional. It's good. We should feel emotion when we think about this stuff. If it's true, we should feel it. We should. So this is the confession that we have. So I want to go backtrack just for a second and remind us the context of this statement is about deacons. Now, how lame is that? Deacons? And Paul's get, Paul is preaching and getting excited talking about deacons. Have you ever seen a preacher get excited about deacons? Deacons are the bane of preachers' existence. And Paul's like, man, you've got to have deacons. Because deacons, what they help you do if, they're, if they've been tested properly, deacons can help a church further grasp the glory of that text. They're not just doing the stuff that the preacher didn't want to do. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not objecting to that. But that's not why they exist. That's not why they exist. Deacons aren't merely servants, although you can't be a mere servant. Think of Jesus the night that he was betrayed. After he was betrayed, probably feeling some hurt because he was a man too. 100% God, 100% man. Don't ask me to explain that one. And he wraps a towel around his waist. And he gets on his hands and his knees and he begins to wash the feet, the filthy feet of his disciples who walked in streets where there was no sewage lines. I mean, this is really filthy. This is why they had the tradition of foot washing, why they had pots inside the front door of any home where people would wash their feet and their hands when they came in. It was, it was really dirty. And Jesus gets down on his hands and his knees and he washes their feet. And he said, I want you to serve one another when I've gone on just like what I'm doing to you right now. You see, deacons, their ministry is to further animate what Jesus did 2,000 years ago when he was on the floor is to show us what foot washing looks like in our context. Now, we don't have pots inside our front doors where people wash their feet. Jeremy and Denise do, but I don't. And, but in our context, there's a myriad of ways that we can get on our hands and knees and, quote, wash one another's feet, serve one another, 
And deacons are intended to help bring that picture to life, walking it out in front of us so we can be convicted by that and follow in their path. This is big. And so the next few minutes, I'm going to talk about the behavior of deacons. What is required of deacons? And Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says that deacons must be dignified. Out of the box, he says they've got to be worthy of respect and they are worthy of being imitated. Deacons are to be imitated. Good deacons. So everything that you hear from this point forward is about us emulating deacons. Follow their lead. Watch how they show mercy and care and copy them. Because this is intended for the whole church. Deacons aren't raised up to do the stuff nobody else wants to do. Deacons are raised up to do the stuff nobody else wants to do so we can be captivated by their servanthood and then we all start to do what they, want, what they do. That's why deacons exist. That's why they exist. Hopefully I won't have to make an announcement next week about parking lot and nursery because we should all be serving. All of us. All of us. They shouldn't be double-tongued. I just spit all over my iPad. It's really bad. Um, they shouldn't be double-tongued. They can't be gossips or slanderers. They don't talk like Satan. They don't have a snake-like tongue. They're not dispensing juicy news. It also says they're not addicted to much wine. Paul is basically saying that they have control with alcohol. You know what it says in the original language? Literally, that they pay attention to their wine. They pay attention to their wine. They're not drunkards. They're not drunkards. And we should all not be drunkards, those of us who engage in alcohol in this room. Can't stand up here and say don't drink. The Bible doesn't say that. (laughs) But watch your wine. Watch your wine. That should be a t-shirt. Watch your wine. Uh, (laughs) They're not greedy for dishonest gain. They aren't always looking for a quick buck. They're not taken in by the get-rich-quick silliness. Also, as deacons, they don't dispense more care and mercy to the people who are wealthy or the affluent in a church and less to those who are poor. They are equitable in the dispensing, the dis- dispensing of mercy. Dispension. I don't know what that is. So they're not greedy for dishonest gain. They hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They hold to the pure gospel. Yeah, they're not required to teach, but they are still required to be doctrinal people, gospel people. They must be tested. They must be observed, assessed, trained by elders, and then approved with an official installation, whatever that might look like in various, in various traditions. Now, there's one thing I've got to deal with here because it's in the text, and I can't just run over it. And it deals with gender. Verses 11 and 12 say this. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things, 
Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. Now, this is a tough text to get our arms around. Today, we're going to be commissioning four deacons, two of whom are women. And I've got to tell you why we're going to do that, because the scriptures appear to say here, at least imply that deacons should be men. Now, what's strange about this text is this. In the previous few verses, when Paul talks about the qualifications for elders, he gives no qualifications for their wives. They are just to be the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. But when you get down to the deacon part, now keep in mind the elders are the shepherds of a church. It's important that elders' wives are strong women of God. Just as a pastor, many times when someone is facing a crisis or some sort of trauma in their life, in their lives, it requires me and my wife, Becky, to jump into that. And quite frankly, it's really good, especially when I'm dealing with females, because my wife brings a sensitivity that I often don't have. It's really important. And so why would Paul say about elders' wives that elders should just have one wife and then get down to deacons and say deacons' wives should also be qualified? They should also be tested. Why would he do that? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Also, the original language, there's some controversy here because it can also be translated not wives but women. The ESV, for instance, which is a faithful translation, and the reason why we know it's a faithful translation because in the footnotes it gives the alternate translations. And in your footnotes, if you have an ESV, it also says it could read this way, women likewise. Women likewise. You might say, well, why didn't the guys who were writing this say women likewise? Because Greek is a really hard language to translate. Koine Greek, the language that they spoke in the Bible days, was not easy to interpret. Koine Greek was all capital letters. Koine Greek had no spaces between words. Koine Greek had no punctuation. And in Koine Greek, word uh, word, uh, the way that they arranged words was irrelevant. Learning Greek is really, 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 really hard. And interpreting this stuff can be difficult as well. And so the good faithful translations will list several views on this, several translation possibilities, several of them. In addition to that, Paul speaks of a woman named Phoebe in the book of Romans, and he refers to her as a deacon. Now, that's not enough to build a whole doctrine on. But that, taken with some of the ambiguity in this text, and also the fact that for 2,000 years of church history, going all the way back to the apostles, there's evidence that women in the church served as deacons. And for us, we hold to this lightly. We hold to this loosely. But we feel that there is some biblical warrant to allow for the commissioning of women to serve as deacons in the church. I know this opens up Pandora's box for some folks because gender is a massively thorny issue. And I've been thinking this week, you know, getting into this, that I probably need to come back and do some teaching on the subject of women in ministry. People ask me about that all the time. What do you think about women in ministry? Why does renewal only have male elders? It's not because we're chauvinists. It's not because we're misogynists. It's because we feel captured by God's word. But I'll say this. The wrong question is, can women be in ministry? Yes, If you're asking me if women can preach and teach, absolutely. If you're asking me if women can serve as an elder in a governing role where biblical correction 
and church discipline is being applied to families. I don't think the Bible says that. I don't think the Bible says that. That's my position, and that's the position of a myriad of faithful, God-fearing theologians and scholars. And I know my limitations, and there's no way I'm going to step out of line of what some of those guys and gals say when it comes to the scholarship that's around this text. Anyway, man, that was a mouthful. But anyway, so, um, so we, we, are going to be, we are going to be commissioning a couple of females along with a couple of males today. And, um, and one other comment about this. There are incredible ministries all over the world of men and women that I respect, really respect, who almost universally agree that this is not an issue to fight over. It's just not. That's my view as well. There are great God-fearing men such as Tim Keller, Redeemer Prez in New York City, who I really admire. They have female deacons in their church. And there are people that I really admire and respect who don't have that. They don't agree with that. It's not just to each his own. It's just where we are. So that may or may not be a satisfying explanation for some of you. Okay. Okay, but that's where we are. So we will be uh, commissioning four deacons today, two of which are men, two of, which are, two, two of whom are women. And... Um, we feel really good about this. Um, the point is, is that anyone who serves as a deacon, anyone who serves as a deacon must meet these qualifications. They must meet these qualifications. Deacons at renewal will not be the go-to ministry for people who are hurting, but will fill the cracks that our elders and our community groups can't effectively fill. That's where we are in that. So... One other thing, I'm sure the four deacons that we're going to be commissioning, they're sitting there going, wow, I'm not sure I want to do this now after that sermon. <laughs> um, every time I read the qualifications for an elder, I get really convicted. These guys and these ladies are not being put up here because they're perfect. They're not. And I'm going to beg you, please don't put that pressure on them. But these are people who have been with us for a long time. They have been doing works of mercy ministry in our church for a long time and I want the germ of their heart to infect the rest of us they're going to stumble they won't be perfect they're probably mortified that I've preached this message before laying hands on them but um, we all need to be held accountable to this because again this isn't just for deacons this is for all of us all of us should never be double tongued all of us should hold the mystery of the gospel with a clear conscience all of us should not just deacons so at this point, I'm going to ask our uh, deacon, the folks that we're going to commission as deacons to come up, uh, Dr. John Owens. Come on up here, man, John Owens. Um, uh, doctor, and she's a real doctor, Dr. Kitty Lawson. Come on up here, Kitty. Mr. Derek Jones, come on up here. Karen Spencer. And, Ro and Robbie Stansfield. Now, you might be thinking, I thought, wait a second, I thought John Owens was an elder. 
And uh, he was. He was an elder. We kicked him out. I'm kidding. Um, John, share for a moment about what God's done in your life over the last few months. Well, praise the Lord. Uh, it's good to see everybody this morning. And, um, you know, one of my favorite scriptures, of course, that anybody that's been around me is uh, to everything there is a season and to everything there is a purpose. I'm going to go back for just a little bit, Chris. You said I had a couple of minutes. I'm going to go back to 1970. This Short... is why we fired him. That's why. That's right. 1970, graduated from college, got into my field of work, Boston, Michigan, Tennessee, and I had a whole bunch of titles. I was district manager, sales rep, all those kind of things. But what it came down to for those almost 30 years, I was a salesman. I was a salesman. When I came here in 1991 with my wife and three of our children, first thing I found myself doing was ushering. And then thanks to uh, Pastor Fred, I found myself in the parking lot. Then I found myself being a, what we called then a deacon trustee. And then uh, a few years ago, um, I was installed as an elder. And through all those things from my heart, just like in my sales career, I was, had all those titles, I was a salesman. I think it, I take it as a great opportunity to be a servant. One who serves the Lord. One who makes an attempt, not always successful, to help my pastor and the staff and to minister unto those folks that come in contact, I come in contact with. So I look forward to, again, standing with these folks to, again, stand in the gap of time to pray with you and to uh, minister wherever possible. And I got to go off a of script just one second. This morning when I came in here, and I believe it was Sherry was praying, I got to thinking, reading that plaque out there on the building, do you know that there has been a church on this property since 1850? On this property, those that have gone before have prayed for us, and that we are going to pray for those yet to come in the future. Thank you, John. We actually found a photo that is very, very old, and uh, it's of the original building that was here in the previous two centuries back. And um, it was of where, and the, the, the subtitle was, where white people and slaves worship together. I thought that was really profound when I saw that. Um, I don't know the story behind that. I want to find out, but I just found that to be really incredible. Um, we've come a long way since then. And, uh, man, I look at these guys up here and ladies. I use guys generically. And I think about my friend Derek, who uh, God gave me the very great, great blessing of leading to Christ in my front living room about, what, eight or ten years ago, Derek? And now you're a deacon in our church. And I'm just so thankful for that, brother. And Robbie, who is uh, just a wonderful servant and has a heart to minister and who is ready to shepherd people and be with people in their pain. Um, I really admire that about he and Michelle and Dr. Lawson, who founded Victims to Victory, who for over 20 years of her life has been living for 
ministering to people who have been victims of violent crimes and homicide. That's what she does for a living. And um, Karen, she works with World Relief. I keep calling it World Vision. It's World, Re- World Relief, right? So, <laughs> and uh, I've got a World Everything. World Relief, and she works. Uh, to share for a moment what you've been doing right now, Karen, just for a second. Yeah, come on. Um, so most recently, the Lord's brought me to World Relief um, to help the church just awaken to how all throughout Scripture, he calls us to love the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, the foreigner. Almost every time he teaches us to love those vulnerable people, he he includes the foreigner. Mm. And so this isn't a political issue right now. This is a biblical issue. And so God has in my discomfort, <laughs> called me to be the church engagement manager for World Relief in Memphis to help the church awaken to realize this isn't, isn't the government's responsibility. This is our responsibility to welcome them, to love them, to care for them well. And who do we know except that God could have brought them here so that they would know for the first time the love of Jesus. And so that's, that's where I am. Karen, if you don't mind, just pass the mic down and just everybody just say, just introduce yourselves. And, and I'm the, sorry, you know, but I'm in charge right now. So just introduce yourselves. I'm Kitty Lawson. Uh, as Pastor Chris said, um, I have the privilege of leading uh, the ministry of victims to victory, where our mission is to help victims of crime move from crisis to comfort through Christ. Uh, Many, many years ago, the Lord planted and launched that vision for those in particular who had been victimized by homicide, and many of their surviving family members are the forgotten ones. And we know that when people are in crisis, many times their heart is at a place where it can be open to hear the love of God, to experience the peace, the redemptive peace and grace of Jesus Christ. So it is really a privilege that I have been honored uh, to have. Thank you. Uh, Good morning. Uh, I know a lot of you by faces. I'm not very good at names all the time, but I definitely uh, remember faces. So, you know, God has brought us to Memphis. We're not originally from Memphis or uh, Olive Branch, where we currently live. About 10 years ago, where I met Pastor Chris and his family, we lived down the street from one another. And a lot of you guys may know my kids, DJ and Yana. They've been running around this church for the past 10 years and have grown up here. And, and I just want to say, you know, um, just blessed with the opportunity to continue to serve. Uh, you know, God always puts that on my heart and my kids' heart to just help wherever we can. It's not about money. It's not about what you have, what you know, who you know. It's really more about being compassionate for other people, kind of sharing the things in your life that can help someone else's life change. And then uh, kind of being able to continue to help in the church, that's just really what I want to do. I just want to help people as much as possible and serve in the best capacity possible for everyone at the church, uh, not just to be at Chris's beck and call. (laughs) Touche. Those are some uh, hard acts to follow there. So so my name is Robbie Stansfield. My wife is Michelle. Uh, we have three children. Michelle's in the back with our oldest son, Malachi. Uh, Malachi's 10. We have a daughter named Lydia. She's seven. Then we have a, our youngest son is Gabriel. His name is, his, well, his name is Gabriel. Uh, he's five years old. Uh, we've lived here in the Memphis area for about six years. Uh, we moved here from Alabama. Um, 
very much like Derek, we've moved around. Uh, I'm originally from Michigan. My wife is from Alabama. So we moved here six years ago with work, and we are going to be here for a while. So this is home for us. Um, I don't know. One thing that I just wanted to share is, you know, alongside everybody, alongside all of us together, uh, Ephesians 6 says that together with all the saints, can you fathom the height, the width, the depth of the love of Christ? And it takes all of us. And it's not just about the four walls here. It's about everybody outside of here. Um, and so whether we're at the grocery store, we're at the gas station, we're at work, we're at school, we're at our places where we do our day-to-day activities, that's the world that we live in. That's the world that we're to impact. And I'm honored to be here, honored to, to, to co-labor with um, all of us, with all of you. And uh, thank you. Thank you, Robbie. Um, I'm going to ask you... Um, would you accept these deacons to minister mercy into your life? Would you accept them? Um, I'm going to ask uh, Steve Fredrickson and Jeremy Horn to join me up here. Um, two of our elders are out this morning. Ron Surgeon is uh, doing his third week at a church in Whitehaven where they are training the folks of this particular church to uh, penetrate their neighborhoods and bring the gospel to folks out there. And, uh, and then David Leach is ill this morning, so he's not with us. But uh, uh, I'm going to open the mic up for John and any of our elders to pray over these folks and just take a few minutes and conclude our service. We'll finish up here, then we'll take the Lord's Supper, and then we'll dismiss you. I do apologize for going a little longer today, but this is a special and unique time, and I think it's really, really good and healthy for us. So if you would, would you stretch your hands out to these folks and pray with me? Lord, I thank you, Jesus, for all, all five of these wonderful people. I thank you for their lives. I thank you that when I think of a person who serves and who gives of themselves, th- these five are among those who come to my mind. And it is an honor to commission them. I say with as much sincerity as I have, that their lives convict me. Their lives challenge me and stir me towards godliness. And I thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that that same thing happens with all of our members and all of our people who come from all over the city participate in our church. God, I thank you for their servants' hearts. Serving is almost always a thankless job. Serving in the quiet shadows, doing things that most people don't notice. And I pray, Jesus, that as one person prayed this morning in our morning prayer, that they would not become weary in well-doing, but they would be strengthened by the power of Jesus' might. And they would abound in giving more and more and more grace to the folks of our church. I thank you for them in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Guys, I just want to speak... um the word of the Lord over you guys, just, just sitting here looking at each one of you and just even being convicted in my own heart and life of just how amazing you guys are, needing to step up my game just because of the way that you love people. And I just feel like the Holy Spirit saying this morning, he's saying he wants us to be known as followers of him by the way we love one another. And you guys love well. I can say that because I've seen your lives. I know you personally, you love well. 
And I pray that what Chris said this morning would be true, that you would be more than servants. You would be examples to us of what it means to love each other well. I pray for every single person here this morning that as they look and see you, that they would be reminded of what it means to serve one another and love each other well. In Jesus' name. Father, we're thankful for the example that you've given us, Lord. Jesus, you came and you served. You served your Father and you served us. And you've put that gift in these, all of these, Lord God, uh, in their hearts and their willingness to serve the, the church, the body. Father, we pray in Jesus' name as they, as they do their work that you've given them, that you would anoint them with your Holy Spirit, that they would become infectious, Lord God, in the body of Christ, that those that see their example would join hands with them and, and be co-workers, Lord God. Mm. We ask you to bless them in their work, bless them in their walk and their life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. 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 Thank you.